Let me invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> we turn to chapter 11. It's sort of an, an issue that we turn to chapter 11. It's an issue only in the fact that I didn't make up the chapter numbers. I didn't make up the chapter verses. They were made in the Middle Ages a long time ago, but a long time after the Bible. They were not original. This is one of those times when, when really we need to read a little bit extra. So we're going to read not three verses, but four verses. We're going to read the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, uh, 39. We're going to read through verse 3 of chapter 11. We begin this very famous chapter. If there's any chapter in the book of Hebrews that you know, it's probably this chapter. By faith, the hall of faith, it's called various names. We get the introduction this week, and we'll get into the various figures, the various heroes next week. But we have to see why it's here. Let's, uh, let's begin in chapter 10, verse 39. It really goes together with these uh, opening three verses of chapter 11. The author of Hebrews and the Lord give us this brief discussion of faith. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask his enduring word to inculcate faith in our life, to give us faith this hour. Let's pray. Lord, we do believe. We ask you would help our belief. We seek to continue in faith. Grow us and make us and mold us and shape us in the faith once delivered to all the saints. We ask this in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a, it's a, it's a great text, a beautiful text. Faith, wonderful, classic statement of faith. It seems so simple, doesn't it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But it's funny because I think folks say to me a lot, they say to you a lot, I'm sure, I wish I had your faith. That's the kind of thing people say, you know, and they know that you go to church a lot and they don't, you know. Ah, I wish I had your faith. Sometimes we, we hear that and we think, no, you don't. I don't have a lot of faith. Sometimes we think, I wish I had a lot more faith. I don't feel like I have much. We want more. On the one hand, we have people think we have a lot of faith. On the other hand, we don't feel like we have a lot of faith. The funny thing is, of course, that's not new. That's not new. Nearly 2,000 years ago, a group of Christians were thinking of giving up their religion. What was their problem? Why were they going to give it up? Their faith was weak. They had weak faith. It was wavering. They felt like they were shrinking back. They were worried. It's an issue. It's the, it's the issue of the book of Hebrews. 
But it's not the issue of the book of Hebrews. It's your issue too. It's my issue. It's our issue. And the entire sermon here, the entire book of Hebrews is written to help Christians persevere. It's written to help us. Remember, we are to be encouraged in our faith. In fact, the author says, this is why, partly right why I read verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And now he says, here's what faith is. Here's what faith is. Matt, notice a couple of things about this section. We are not given, let's be very clear about this. Often this is put as kind of some definition of faith. You say, well, this is, uh, if you want to define what faith means, here is what faith means. And they quote, you know, if you've been, if you've been the navigator, if you've been in any kind of Christian uh, fighter verse memorization group, you're going to memorize this verse. Faith is the assurance of things, hope for the conviction of things not seen. That's great. You should memorize it. But it's, it's not a definition, or at least it's not a definition the way we think of it as. It's, it's not a textbook definition. This is not talking about, the, the author nowhere here speaks of justifying faith. Nowhere does the author speak of the relationship between faith and the doctrine of union with Christ. Rather, the author is laser-focused, really centering on the part of faith that helps us persevere. It's really centering here on what helps a Christian endure. What is it about faith that helps you stand fast in the day of trial, in the day of temptation, when you're weary, when you're tired, when you're anxious? There's something that faith has that all these saints in the whole chapter showed. There's something that faith has that allows you to endure. And friends, you know, I, I read every, every, every five years, there's always articles that come out that say, you know, the Christian church in America is, is, is failing. The next generation is not catching the faith. I've read this every, every five years. You see some article that um, goes like this. People are not keeping the faith. It's not a new problem. It's the problem of the last 2,000 years. It's a human problem. What does it mean to have faith that endures? And, the, of course, the problem is that many folks ha have, have a faith that has no foundation. Many folks believe that there are fairies in the garden, that rocks give off energy. They're going to win the lottery if they just get the right tickets. They buy 20 of them. But biblical faith is not that kind of faith. The, the description here in verse 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is not the kind of faith that accepts something as true apart from evidence. That's not biblical faith. There are people who think that. There are people who think that Christian faith, that believers take their brains out when they come to church. They take their brains out, they put them at the front door, you walk in here, and then you just exist as a, as a brainless blob. Because, you know, we're, we're scared that if we actually examine the evidence, we're going to be wrong. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. And so some people think that, some Christians think, that faith is a kind of a leap into nowhere, a leap in the dark. If I get pumped up enough, if I believe strongly enough, if I just believe something, then I can make something that I know is not the case to be the case. 
It's a very, very prevalent view of faith. If you want, if you want to see it, press your friends, press your neighbors, press the people, press them about faith in their life. And they will tell you, well, I believe that rocks give off energy. And you ask them for the evidence and they say, well, I believe it because I believe it. It's hogwash. It's like the guy who went to the psychiatrist. He, the psychiatrist says that you're, you're dead. And <clears throat> the, 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 the guy says, says to him, I, I'm, I'm dead. And the psychiatrist says, I, I, you, you walk up the stairs. And, and he says, yes, I, I know that I, I walked up the stairs, but I'm still dead. And the psychiatrist says, well, do dead men bleed? And the guy takes a needle and, and stabs himself. He says, it looks like they do. I guess dead men do bleed because I'm bleeding. That's the kind of a wrong view of Christian faith. It's a wrong view of faith. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is not, I believe it even though everything around me says otherwise. Rather, real faith, as we look here at the text, is not based on unstable Feelings, it's not based upon life without evidence. Rather, we see that the author wants to show us what faith is based upon. He wants to give an explanation. He does so in verse 1. He wants to give us a hint. He does so in verse 2. He wants to give us a word about creation. So if you want to outline, there's your outline. An explanation in verse 1, a hint in verse 2, and then a word about creation in, 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 in verse 3. He's describing here in verse 1, as I've mentioned, what does persevering faith do? Look there, he says this, persevering faith does this. The assurance of things Hope for the conviction of things not seen. Now, if you were to go to the older theologians, they would tell you that faith has three parts. It has knowledge. It has assent. It has trust. You know the thing. You assent to the thing. You trust in the God of that knowledge. But the author does not tell us that. We are not told here that faith equals trust, even though it is. Rather, This is how faith works. This is how the heroes of the Christian faith lived their life when they were tempted. This is how the heroes of the Christian faith lived their faith when they were in trial. I mean, that's why the whole chapter is about Abel and Moses and Noah and all the rest. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That is things in the future. You hope for something not in the present, but in the future. The author means that faith holds on to God's promises. We want to know what will help you endure as a Christian. Faith holds on to God's promises, even if you don't feel them, even if they aren't here yet. Faith looks to the promise of God because it knows that God's integrity means the promise is as good as here. Now, in some countries, you get a government bond, and that government bond says it's worth X amount, but it's worthless. 
in other countries, more like the U.S., if you get a government bond, it's as good as cash generally. It's worth something. So it is here with faith. Faith looks to the promise of God. You ever wonder? You ever wonder as a Christian, as someone who is called a believer, that you believe what you believe? I mean, do you ever wonder that you believe what you believe? Do you ever get on your knees and pray in the dark times? And nobody's there. So, so Pastor John, not, not hearing you. But you can't see anything, and you can't hear any. You can't. There's no audible voice you hear in your ear, and you say out loud, or maybe you think it. Oh God, I know that you hear my prayers. I mean, that's what praying. But praying, real heartfelt prayer, is you talking in a room by yourself. Often, nobody talks back to you. You can't hear anything. Yet you do it. Why do you do it? I mean, we gather together. Wednesday evening, do we pray together? What's the difference between that and just talking? Why do we believe what we believe? How are we so certain that prayer works? We need to know this. We're going to persevere. The answer is right here. Now, faith is the assurance of things Hoped for. In other words, the only reason we get together and pray, the only reason we get together and sing, the only reason we get together and hear God's word is because we have to believe that it is God. It's backed by God himself. All the evidence points in the direction of God. It points in the direction of God who has made promises. You look look through all these saints. We'll look through them in the, in the weeks to come. You look through Abel. You look through Noah. You look at Moses. You look at Abraham. What is their faith? What are they commended for? If you want to know what the author's doing here, ask the very simple question. What is every hero commended for, heroine commended for? The author approves of their faith, and their faith is never some pie-in-the-sky silliness. It's never some make-believe fancy. It's never some fantasy. It's not science fiction. It's not uh, an overactive imagination. I think Christians often assume that faith uh, is really, uh, sometimes we we get attacked for having an, an, an overactive imagination. You believe in some some old man in the sky, uh, uh, the man upstairs with a big beard. You can have an amazing imagination and never have faith. Faith is not the ability to imagine things. Faith is the resting of your entire soul on what God has promised to do. That's why faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You look to the future and you say, my hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what you say. That's what you mean. That's what you believe. And that's why, friends, what you think about this book matters. That's why we are so focused here on the word of God. Not because we have an obsession with letters on a page but because it is the conviction, it is the hope that this very word is our foundation stone. 
So I guess the maybe the, the question for struggling Christians who need enduring faith, if you want to give a test to yourself, you can do this test. Do you know the promise of God? I mean, could you pick out a promise of God relevant to you in every situation? And if you're worried tonight, if you're struggling tonight, if you're weak tonight, one of the best medicines you can take is not to go get a, a Pepto-Bismol or Alka-Seltzer or whatever it is, but to pull out the promise of God. Pull out one promise of God. If you're discouraged, if you're in danger, like Jacob was, you have a promise to hold on to. Don't flail about. Cling to the assurance of things hoped for. And the thing you hope for is God's promise to be fulfilled. The author text on an addition here, secondly, the assurance of things hoped for. And he explains the conviction of things not seen. It makes sense if you think about the logic of it. Things hoped for haven't happened yet. And so if they haven't happened yet, you can't see them. You can't see the future. It hasn't happened yet. It makes sense. But there's something deeper in these words. The conviction of things not seen. The audience of this book, the Jewish Christian audience of the book of Hebrews, was obsessed with what they could see. They were obsessed with the complexity the intricacy, the physical beauty of the old covenant of Moses and the temple and the priest and the sacrifices and the incense and the altar. They could touch the goat. They could touch the bull. They could see the guilt transferred as the animal's blood was shed. Old time religion looked so good. Yet faith points to things we cannot see. You cannot see the forgiveness of sins. There's no account that you can go on your phone and look up and see, oh, my sins have now been forgiven. The check cleared. Finally, you can't do that. It's not visible. And there was a clue to that in the old time religion. There was a clue to that in the Old Testament. The clue was on that great day of atonement. We've talked about it before. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies the most sacred event in the Old Testament, and the people couldn't see him. They didn't know what would happen in there. They didn't know if he had been successful or not. It required faith. So the author emphasizes here that the heroes of faith trusted God for things unseen. Just think about Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah, you idiot, why are you building an ark? What are you doing, you silly man? Why are you wasting your money? You're putting all your savings into that? That's a foolish endeavor. What did Noah see? He saw a promise of God. He saw a promise of God. He saw a thing unseen. A thing unseen. Abraham. Abraham was called. We've seen it in Genesis. Abraham was called where? Not to a place he already knew. He couldn't uh, map quest it. He couldn't look on, online and see pictures of Canaan. It was a thing unseen. It was a place unseen. God called him. And the point here is that enduring faith. The point is not that faith is a blind leap. The point is 
God's promise is more reliable than what you can see with your eyes. It's not a blind leap, friends. It's the most trustworthy move you can make because there is a conviction of things not seen. This is why, friends, the only people who can do this are converted people. This is why if you're a Christian, you have to be converted. One of the hallmarks of the Christian is that you begin to see earth in light of the invisible. You begin to see the visible earth in light of the invisible. Most of our lives, we assume the opposite. Most of our life, we assume that the invisible is like the visible. That's why I always get some questions. You probably get them too, I'm sure. You tell people you're a Christian. You, you tell them you're looking forward to heaven. And what's their first question? Is my little puppy going to be in heaven? Is my, uh, what's the house going to be like? Am I going to have wallpaper? Is the car going to be in heaven? Is so-and-so going to be in heaven? We have earthly questions. What's the food like in heaven? Now, those books sell like hotcakes because we believe that the visible is most important and therefore we think heaven is like what we see around us. We ask earthly questions. We ask temporal questions. But the Bible always depicts heaven as a world that is more filled with substance than this passing age. This is a basic principle of the Christian life. What does it mean to live, to have faith that's going to endure? Don't you want to have faith that's going to endure? Don't you want to pass on that faith to the generations to come? Of course we do. The basic principle of the Christian life. We cannot live on what we see with our own eyes. We must live on the basis of what God says to us in his word through our ears. We don't live by eye faith. Because eye faith is no faith. It doesn't take faith to believe your eyes. We live by ear faith. It's actually what Paul says in Galatians. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by works of the law? Were you justified by works of the law or by hearing with faith? By hearing with faith. As Luther would say, the ear is the gospel organ. The ear is the gospel organ. It's impossible, therefore, for the Christian who has persevering faith to look like her neighbors. That's why when you read through all the heroes of Hebrews 11, you read about Abel and you read about Moses and you read about Abraham and you read about Gideon and Samson and David and all the rest. They look very different from the world around them. They're always weird. Why are they weird? Because their ears are more important than their eyes. Because they're using their ears more. They're using their ears more. They had set their gaze on the word of God, on what was invisible. They had listened to the word of God, what was invisible. And because they looked there, they were the most good here. So we see here, this opening explanation. And then we have really this context for faith. This context for faith. Verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe is created by God. Notice, of course, this word understand means that yet again, if I cannot make the point enough times, 
Faith is not brainless. You have to understand. By faith, we understand. Faith understands. It has content to it. But I suppose there's a weird question here. The weird question is this detour to creation. Why in verse 3 does the author bring up creation? By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Here's the reason why the author makes a weird detour to talk about the creation of the world. His argument is, if God can do that, he can do this. If God can do that, if he can create the world, he can do this. If God's word is so strong and so certain and so sure with the creation of the universe, then his word is so strong and so certain and so sure with your minor mess ups, your tiny troubles, your temporary traumas, your feeble finances, the mishaps that occur along the way with the rough relationships. If God's word can bring the universe into existence without any prior material, well, it's, it's that great hymn. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. That's the kind of faith that will endure. That's the kind of faith that will persevere. You see his argument here in verse three? He's saying, why do you think it's weird if the invisible is stronger than the visible world if the visible world has been created by the invisible God? Or to put it maybe with a less visible, invisible words, why would you doubt the word of God when the word brings the universe out of no thing? Nothing. Ex nihilo. This is one of the problems, of course, with scientists. Uh, it's not just a science problem. I'm not here to rag on science. The problem with engineers, English teachers, doctors, theologians, pastors, plumbers, garbage collectors, any kind of job is that we think because we are scientists or because we are lawyers or because we are pastors or because we are just humans that we're right. So when we speak about God as creator, or when scientists speak about the creation of the world, it's no longer a question of evidence. It's a question of anger and hatred. It's the same mistake that is often made that was made famously by the old cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. You know, Gagarin, the Russian, the Soviet, he went up there. He came back and he said, there's no God up there. I didn't see him in space. And what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? Of course, he's invisible. He's the invisible God who made all things. You're not supposed to see him up there. Well, in fact, you are supposed to see him up there. Uh, I've mentioned this morning that my wife and I were able to go camping out this uh, last couple of days. And one of the beautiful things we got to do is to go and look at the sky at night. I mean, you can do that here, of course. But there's all the light pollution. So try going and looking at the sky at night when there's no light pollution. I turned my phone off, went to a secluded area. I looked up. And there were stars I had not seen in decades. Brilliant. I, I had a glimpse of how the ancient pagans could really get obsessed about constellations because there were so many stars that it, I could see them. What do they point to? What does the visible world point to? 
I can't make the stars come into being. They're balls of gas. I can't, I can't do that. You can't do that. It points, of course. It points to the God who makes all things out of nothing. Why do we go on this little rabbit trail? Why does he go on the little rabbit trail, the author of Hebrews? Because God has shown these people that he will never lose his promise. He did it at creation, but he did it at a different place as well. You know, there's a better place. If you want a hook for your faith in the hard times, if you want a hook for your faith in the times when you're tempted to give up, there's a better hook than creation. The hook is the most difficult and painful promise that God ever made. What's the most difficult promise? What's the most painful promise that God ever made? It was the promise, wasn't it? The promise to send his son and to see his son beaten and to see his son spat upon and to see his son laughed at and to see his son killed and to have his son cry out, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? I mean, if you're a father or mother, y'all know this. When your child cries out, why have you abandoned me? And you stand there and you're just quiet. Could you do that? I don't think so. But God made that promise and God kept that hard, difficult promise. And if he could keep that hard, difficult promise He could then keep every other promise for you. It's the logic of Paul. This is no different than the logic of Paul in Romans chapter 8. If he did not spare his own son, if then, if he did not spare his own son, how much more will he give us all things we need? This is why you must come to faith in Christ. Because you know that when God promises you something in his word, it is as good as ours. All you have to do is simply to trust him, humbly come to him. Nothing sweeter than to trust in Jesus Christ. So the question for you, are you a woman of faith? Are you a man of faith? Are you a boy of faith? Are you a girl of faith? What what I don't mean by that is, do you have mathematical knowledge? You know the content of faith. You know, half, half base times height is the area of a triangle. I don't mean do you have experimental knowledge about faith. You know, you you drop apples from the tree and eventually you realize, ah, gravity exists. I I I I, I had trial and error. I, I guess Jesus is right because I've tried I tried everything else. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of faith that can allow Moses to lose everything in his life, the prince of Egypt to be exiled, the kind of faith that allows Abraham to go on a cross-country trek, the kind of faith that allows all of these saints to do what they did and stay true, not foolish optimism, not naive, you know, just leap in the dark, not, you know, pep talk, Christian, pump yourself up time. Rather, we are told that Moses, <clears throat> Moses saw 
He saw the day of Christ. Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What did Moses do? Verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured what? As seeing him who is invisible. Those are really the two temptations you face. On the one hand, you face the, the money temptation, the treasure of this life temptation. You face the temptation to lose your faith because the treasures of this world, <laughs> they're pretty good, aren't they? On the other hand, you face the temptation of the thorns, the trials of this life, the threat of Pharaoh, like the threat of Esau to Jacob. And in both the cases, you need a greater reward. You need the assurance of something hoped for. You, but you also need the conviction of invisible reality. You need the conviction of Jesus Christ. That's biblical faith. Moses was not naive. He was not stupid. He was not you know, Pollyanna. He was not puffing himself up. Rather, he regarded affliction with God's people a better option than the pleasure of sin for a time. That's biblical faith. Do you have that faith? Are you enjoying the life of faith? It starts when you rest on Jesus Christ and everything slots into place. It may not happen in an instant, but it will happen over your life. You want enduring faith? Look and see God's promises. Not one of them falls to the ground. That will keep you standing. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we come. We ask that you would give us this assurance and this conviction. That we would use the evidence you've given to us in the world around us, in your word, in our very consciences. But that we would go beyond that and lay our lives upon the cross beams of Calvary that we would put our souls into your safekeeping, that we would not see with our eyes, but listen with our ears to your promises. We would put all we have upon your word, that firm foundation that never, never fails. Make us, therefore, those who have faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.